Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is ZibbyOwens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Maisie Card is the author of These Ghosts Are Family. Maisie is a writer and a public librarian. Her debut novel, These Ghosts Are Family, was shortlisted for the Center for Fiction's First Novel Prize and the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Novel. Her writing has appeared in the Paris Review Daily, Lenny Letter, AGNI, The New York Times, Guernica, and other publications. Maisie was born in St. Catherine, Jamaica, but was raised in Queens, New York. She earned an MFA from Brooklyn College, an MLIS from Rutgers University, and a BA in English and American Studies from Wesleyan University. She is currently an instructor for the Sackett Street Writers Workshop and a fiction editor for the Brooklyn Rail. Welcome, Maisie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. By the way, I love the name Maisie. Not that you're responsible for your own name, but <laughs> I really wanted to name one of my daughters Maisie and I was overruled, but it's like my one of my favorite names. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you're lucky. Okay. These ghosts are family. What a debut novel. Oh my gosh. Not only are you getting so much attention, but it's completely warranted attention because <laughs> it's really beautifully written and unique and awesome. So can you tell listeners what these ghosts are family is about? I'll just hold it up. And what inspired you to write it? So these ghosts are family is about I always say one Jamaican family, but it's actually about two Jamaican families. So it begins with the family patriarch, Abel Paisley, you know, telling his kind of descendants that when he was younger, he faked his own death and in order to abandon his family in Jamaica and move to America and created a new family. So the book kind of follows the fallout of this family secret between these two families, you know, and each chapter focuses on a different descendant or someone who was close to the family. And it was really inspired by my own family. 
particularly my grandfather. I was just kind of reflecting. He's a very quiet person, a very secretive person. He actually passed away this year, uh, last year. And, you know, I was just kind of trying to understand how the choices that he's made in his life have affected kind of everyone and how we can kind of see, we can see like his choices reflected in our own lives, whether, you know, even though I didn't realize it till I got older. So does that mean he faked his own death? No, no. On a ship with a container falling on his head or anything like that? No? Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of, you know, I think what a lot of people will ask, you know, what's what's true and what's not true. And I would say, you know, everything, you know, 95, 96% is completely made up. It's really the emotions that are, you know, what inspired me, not so much the actions, you know, so the plot is completely fictional. Does that ever annoy you that everybody keeps asking, including me? <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> You're like, no, I, mean, I am a novelist already. <laughs> Can you stop talking about my own life? I don't know why I always do that because I'm always so curious, like, like of all of what I read, you know, what was you? And there's no shorthand for it, right? Yeah, because I think kind of everything is kind of you in a way. I think, you know, to make characters more realistic, you'll take something either from your, you know, from your own personality or your own shortcomings, your own family, and try to make it real. And some people are composite characters of people I know in some way. So there are little like subtle details. And, And I think actually I started writing it based off of early memories that I had as a child. Like there's a chapter about a funeral and that's actually based off, you know, the ritual of the funeral is based off my memory of my grandmother's funeral when I went to Jamaica when I was like like a kid. So there there are little details that are, you know, drawn from life. Interesting. In an article, yeah, not an article, rather, an interview you did with Pan America, you talked about how time is not atonement and how that line has kind of stayed with you. And I thought that was so interesting because obviously in our culture, especially, you just, somebody passes away and everything is perfect, right? And you just kind of brush under the, the rug anything that was really upsetting or bothering. It's like, it's like you can't come out and say, yeah, but like he was really not a nice guy, you know? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that and how this book helps to form sort of more fully formed characters of people who have passed away and, and how do we, how families need to deal with the aftermath of a complicated person's death. Yeah, I think, you know, my family is very secretive and very like surface, you know, they don't like to say bad things about people in general. And it's just, you know, so I kind of had to like, I kind of had to like be a bit of a detective growing up, you know, to kind of figure out who people really were. Like my grandmother passed away when I was very young and actually I didn't know my grandparents on my father's side of the family. So it's kind of, I just knew them through stories. And so, you know, I think, I pictured them as being like saintly, perfect people. And then, you know, as you grow up and you get to understand your parents a little more, you kind of understand that the way they are and maybe the negative aspects about the the way they are, you know, came from their own upbringing and it's not really necessarily their fault. You know, so I, I, you know, I think about that too. And especially with my grandfather, you know, he definitely wasn't a perfect person. He definitely did things that caused like a permanent fracture in our family. So I, I think, you know, he was in his, 80s, I think when I started writing this and, you know, he passed away when he was 92. So I think, you know, I kind of thought about him a lot when I was writing and it's like, how do you reconcile this kind of person in your mind that has done so many bad things? But at the same time, as far as I've known him, you know, he's the only grandparent I grew up with, you know, he's been a steady presence in my life. So I do love him, but I, he's different people to different, he's different people in our family. And I guess I can absolve him of the sins he's done to me, but I can't, I really don't have a right to do that 
on behalf of other people in my family. So I guess that's where the time is not atonement. And I think also it's interesting. It's just watching people age. I, well, I guess it depends on the person, but some people become so much kinder (laughs) when they get older. And my grandfather in his later years, he started to have dementia. So he was literally like, kind of like a child, you know, we had to take care of him like he was a child. And so you feel so much empathy and it kind of makes you forget who they were for (laughs) the majority of their lives, you know? And, And so that's something that I kind of reflected on, you know, while I was writing this book, you know, what about the other people who have a different version of him in their mind than the version that, you know, I know how, what are they thinking? You know, and since we don't ever have a discussion about anything like that in our family and about, especially about feelings, like I kind of had to just imagine these feelings and this process through these fictional characters. My grandmother on one side passed away, maybe, I don't know, six years ago, something like that. But she also had dementia. And I remember my dad and my uncles talking one, like, I think her last Thanksgiving, and they were like, how does mom seen? And one of them said, well, she said, I love you. And they were like, oh boy, she's on her way out. <laughs> you know, like if she's going to be that expressive. You know? <laughs> so it is funny how, you know, true character sometimes doesn't end up with you at the very end. But all these issues are so complicated. And I, I read in some other piece that it had something to do with your great uncle's death. Is that true? Or I don't know. Did you say that in Rumpus maybe? Or is that even accurate? I don't know. Um, or not so much. I can't remember what I said. Okay, all right, uh, all right. <laughs> I, this is me being so nosy into your life, which is like crazy because I just met you. But I- <laughs> <laughs> and I understand also, in addition to your career as a writer, you're also a librarian. Is that still the case? Tell me about that. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm switching jobs right now. So I've, I took a break. I left my previous job because I was, I'm working on another book, but... I'm going to be kind of working in a different library in New Jersey in a few months or next month, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, that influenced the book a lot because obviously it's, I have a lot of access to like research materials and this, this book took a lot of research. And I think, you know, I think you interact with a lot of different people as a librarian and a lot of different communities. And I think it really gives you a good sense of, it 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 just made me start to think about families and the dynamics of families and communities. Yeah. And also before I became a librarian, I actually wanted to be an archivist, you know, so I, you know, I thought about a a lot about like what, you know, ancestors leave behind and like ephemera and, you know, my family is not very bad at record keeping, which has always been something that's, you know, made me sad. So I think, you know, I kind of wanted to imagine like if, you know, if my family, if things were different, And it's not just my family's fault. It's obviously the history of like (laughs) slavery and colonialism that's at fault. But, you know, I wanted to imagine what what it would be like if I could have those records and have access to kind of piece together an accurate, you know, family tree. So they don't keep a lot of records and they're very secretive. I don't know. (laughs) It sounds like there's a memoir brewing in here. (laughs) Once you get to the bottom of it, I've always wondered what it would be like working at a library because it's like such a happy place just to be they're surrounded by books and people coming in actively to read and watching people. Like I'm always interested in like consumer behavior and like, why does it make (laughs) someone do this? So in bookstores, there's all this back end reason why books are positioned certain way, right? Like some publishers have deals or like they have to be in a certain place and I'm not saying this very well. I'm like stumbling on my words, but I think you know what I mean in terms of the marketing on the shelf and everything. So in a library though, you have full reign to sort of recommend whatever and put things 
out, how is it like, did you start noticing different behavior patterns of people or did you test out certain books in certain places or like, what did you learn from that? I feel like that would be so interesting. You know, actually in my, in my last job, I was a teen services librarian. So, Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. I, I dealt with the YA collection and also graphic novels a lot. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I did test out different books and like cover. I learned a lot about covers for like, you know, what attracts kids to, to books. But I think the thing that I find mo- found most interesting was that, you know, my, my section of the library was just next to the computer lab. So most of, a lot of the adults would pass through. And I just feel like a lot of adults, I think there's this idea that people have these specific tastes, but I found that like most adults don't even like care, you know, it's like they just see an inch, a, a cover that looks interesting. They pick it up, they read the description and they just check it out and they don't really care whether it's YA or who the target audience is. Yeah, and I kind of noticed that all throughout the library. It's just people are just looking for something that catches their eye that sounds like it has an interesting plot. I don't really think they care much that much about genre or labels. I think genre genre is more like a publishing industry. Yeah. I mean, even YA, for instance, like that didn't used to be YA. Now, if you write a book where you have a younger protagonist, it might get shelved differently than... Yeah. You know, like was Marjorie Morningstar and some of these old classics, were they <laughs> YA? Yeah. <laughs> books, right? I, yeah. Aren't they upstairs downstairs? I, I, I don't know. I feel like all these books were just books. Yeah. And I, and I realized that there's also like a lot of adults, like, especially if you don't, if they're not like very serious readers and they don't read regularly, they tend to just want to read the same authors they've read their whole lives. Like people just come 
into the library asking for Judy Bloom books, you know, even as adults and like, you know, whatever they were reading when they were in high school, I feel like a lot of people just want to keep reading that author forever. It's true. Well, yeah. it's really an investment if you think yeah. about it, right? All this time you're going to spend with somebody. That's why I feel like I like doing this podcast so people can get like an inside look at who the author is before they're like, all right, I'm going to sit down and spend 12 hours on Maisie Card's book. So yeah. <laughs> you get like a little preview and you get like, I feel like people feel like they know Judy Bloom in a way, which they you know, probably don't, or they just get so accustomed to it. Are there books like that for you? Are there authors like that who are go-tos for you? Yeah. You know, when I, I, I think I started reading Jamaica Kincaid when I was in high school. So she's like a go-to author that I still read. Edwige Dantecat as well. I think maybe my senior year or, or maybe in college, I started reading her. So those are two authors that, you know, whenever they publish anything, I, I try to read. I had to make a Kincaid on this podcast. Oh, well, I didn't, uh, I'm going to listen to that. I'll send you the link. It was a while ago, so you'll have to go digging (laughs) (laughs) for her book party with Ricardo Cortez, the children's book. Anyway, so tell me a little more about your path to becoming a published author. I know you have like multiple graduate degrees. Tell me how, when you knew you wanted to write and how you got here, really. Yeah, I, I knew I wanted to write when I was actually like 16 and like 10th grade. And then after that, I kind of, you know, picked a college. I went to Wesleyan. I didn't really know a lot about college. My parents had never gone to college. So I just asked my guidance counselor where I should go. And she was like, apply here. And I went, you know, so there I had more creative writing classes. And actually there I took my first creative nonfiction class. And so that was the first time I kind of started writing about my family because I was writing personal essays and Jamaican characters. So I think that was where the idea of writing a novel like this started. And then after I graduated. I worked for two years in a nonprofit, and then I went to and get an MFA at Brooklyn College. So that's really where it began. But you know, it began as kind of separate short stories that I was writing in that program that were all like based on early memories or stories that I'd heard from my mother, you know, about my father, other people in my family, and so I kept writing it. It took me about twelve years to finish it and get it published. You know, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really in a rush, and I was working a lot. And, you know, I didn't know if it would ever get published. So, you know, I I was just kind of writing. And so I think maybe like five or six years in, I kind of rewrote the whole thing so that it was about the same family. All the characters were were related. And, you know, I had this idea to make the central kind of protagonist that they orbit around, the Abel Paisley character, this patriarch. You know, and around that time, I met my agent, Monica Odom, and... The book was kind of half finished at that point and she kind of gave me deadlines that I really needed, you know, and I, and that's when I finished it pretty, you know, I think over the course of less than a year, maybe like nine months, I I finished the second half and then we sold it. And my editor at Simon & Schuster was Christine Pride and she, we kind of, it kind of expanded when we worked together. So I added like, even after it sold, I added another 30,000 words So it's been a long process. (laughs) Wow. Well, it must feel good to have it be coming out into the world now. Yeah. (laughs) What does it feel like after 12 years of work on this? You know, it's it's like very surreal. It's it's like weird to, you know, like I was looking something up on Barnes & Noble and I was like, oh, you know, it's just your name pops up and it's very, it's very surreal. Especially since we're still at home. So everything's virtual. It's hard to like, I guess, feel it. Like I feel a little disconnected from it. So in terms of process, when you sit down to write a story or something like that, what does that look like to you? Where do you like to write? How long does each thing take? Do you labor over each sentence or do you kind of spill it all out and then go back and edit? Or what's your process like? My process changed. I think when I was writing this book, the first half, 
I labored over every sentence. That's why it took so, so long to write. And I just revised it so many times. But I think now I'm trying to just really focus on plot and just getting the story on the page and then going back and making it sound better. So I, I think I'm still discovering my process because I've never had like time before. You know, I think it, everything was always very rushed and, you know, I would just, you know, take a, use my vacation days or what, whenever to write or write at work sometimes. But <laughs> I think now, you know, I'm taking some time off. So I actually have time to like kind of reflect more and just focus on writing. I'm, I'm, but I do like, I'm more of a binge writer. Like, you know, I like to read a lot and think a lot and then just spend like a very intense amount of time writing. And did you always, like when you started these stories, did you always have it narrated? What is that? The second person where you're like, you, this, you, that, imagine you. No, that came, well, I don't know, because I feel like when you when I started it, I was in the, an MFA program, and I definitely felt like it's nobody explicitly said like these were the rules, but you know, it's, it's like I would submit a draft, and somebody in workshop would say like oh, I don't know if this is going to work, you know, in second person. So I think I backed off on the on the second person. Like there was one story or once one chapter, Excel's Black Eye, that was originally in second person. I actually changed it over time because uh, I was trying to get it published. And I thought maybe that's what was holding me back to get it published as an individual story. So by the time I wrote the first chapter, actually it was like years later. <laughs> so I just felt like I could do whatever I wanted. So I actually, yeah, I, I, I was just having a hard time. I knew I had to tell the story of how Abel Paisley faked his own death and his like reasons for doing so. And I was writing it in first person. I tried it in third person and I, it just, I just wasn't connecting to it. And I didn't like, I didn't like the reader only getting his point of view. So I liked, I changed it to the second person and decided to kind of jump, have the reader jump into the minds of different characters. So everybody, and it's kind of like a blueprint for how the rest of the book is structured too. It's like, you're really just getting one character's actions or sin from different characters, like how it affected every everybody in the entire family. I have to say, when I heard what your book was about, I was like, ooh, I wonder how this man is going to fake his own death. And then when I dove into it, I was like, oh, well, I feel like a lot of people in that situation might have done the exact same thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it just, it was so set up for him to do that, that he would almost have had to make a choice not to do it, as, yeah. opposed, right? as opposed to going to great lengths to do it, which you're, which I, my initial thought was, oh, well, it must have been like a very planned out thing, when in fact it was sort of, fortuitous or maybe not fortuitous, but definitely, you know, spontaneous yeah. incident. Interesting. So now that you have taken time off to write, what are you going to write? I'm working on a second book. It's maybe one of the characters from the first novel spills over into it. I'm not sure. I'll keep her, honestly. But, you know, it's just about a group of immigrant women working as home health aides in a wealthy retirement community in Florida. And it's kind of just like about their friendship and them trying to like organize to right now <laughs> it might change like a uh, form a strike like a strike against their working condition interesting i love that and you uh, i mean there's a lot of that in here as well and the things that the people could be afraid of with men who are a little too handsy and all of that i'm sure there's a lot of material that could be that sounds great in other words <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you have any advice to aspiring authors you know i think i think it's okay it's important to take yourself seriously as a writer and take your work seriously. I think I didn't take myself seriously for a really long time. And that really kind of slowed me down. Like, you know, I didn't think I had the right to like dedicate time to writing. And so, yeah, that, that really added many years to the process for me. 
So yeah, I think it's, I think, and I thought it was like a cliche when people said that, but no, just call yourself a writer, even if you haven't been published and, you know, take your work seriously. Maybe if I called myself a, an athlete, I would actually exercise. Do you think yeah. it works, <laughs> Do you think it works yeah. in many areas of life? Um, it's sort of like the aspirational title of, of anything, right? If you, if yeah. you believe it, maybe you'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Maisie, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for this fantastic book and congratulations on all the attention you've gotten so far. Well, Thank you. Thanks. This was fun. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Take care. Okay, Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 